This is a non-title event for one fall with a 10-minute time limit. In the red corner at 252 pounds from Blacksburg, Virginia, the new North American heavyweight champion, Bob Root. Welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And Bob's going to join us in just a moment. And as you guys may know by now, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, getting ready for that ride one more time. And happy Turkey Day. Well, happy Turkey Eve. It is Thanksgiving Eve here this week in the States. want to wish everyone out here celebrating a happy Thanksgiving and everyone around the world. A happy Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or whenever you're hearing this. Hopefully you guys can use this for your travel along the way this week. Or maybe while you're in the kitchen making those pumpkin pies, turkey, rolls, the green beans, the stuffing. Mm, I can't wait. Unfortunately, I'm the cook in my house, so I'm going to be very busy. Probably likely while you're listening to this, I'll already be prepping some things heading into Thanksgiving. Takes a lot of work to feed eight kids. Now, all of that said, guys, looking forward to the show this week, hoping to talk to Bob about wrestling on the major holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Also got a lot of great feedback about those Terry Funk stories last week. Well, this week I thought maybe we talked to Bob about the junkyard dog. That should be fun. Bob has a lot of admiration for JYD, seems like to me anyway. But before we can get the show rolling, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop podcast along with our sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently starting the 1988 in the World Wrestling Federation Project. And it all kicks off this week with the January 2nd, 88 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. Yes, the rematch between the WWF champion Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. Of course, the storyline being the Hulk-Andre feud leading in to WrestleMania 4. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, guys, where we talk the territories. It's Georgia 81 with Jamie Ward, the UWF, Bill Watts' UWF in 1986 with guest co-host Roman Gomez. And coming soon in just a couple weeks' time, we're adding another project to regional wrestling. It's 1985 in the old Memphis territory. Hoping to have guests like Steve Crawford and Gene Jackson along for that ride. Now you guys can listen to all of those shows and more as part of the WrestleCopia podcast network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And hey, guys, be sure to follow me on social media. Be sure to follow Bob on social media. You can follow Bob over on Facebook. Like him, friend him. He's looking forward to hearing from you. You can find him over at Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. Send him your feedback. Send him your love. Let him know what you want to hear him talk about here on the show. And speaking of letting us know what you want to talk about on the show, make sure to follow me, Ray Russell, on my social media for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. Just dropped about a couple dozen pictures from wrestling history last night. Lots of great feedback all across social media. And you guys can join me there. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, 
You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R A S S L I N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And while you guys are at it, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys. YouTube.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And last but certainly not least, asking you guys, especially heading into the holidays here, to give it a try. Talking about that $5 all access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Yes, guys, talking about all sorts of gifts for just five bucks, including my insanely detailed book like show notes, pages and pages of show notes for every episode of The Grenade, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You also get early access here to the podcast on WrestleCopia where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project, includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. Just dropped another Baker's Dozen. 13 new digital downloads just this week, guys. Go check it out, focusing on the years of 1991, in 1992 in professional wrestling, but there's still more. You get random bonus video drops and, of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Show your support, guys, if you can. If you're looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. And of course, every penny of that donation to Patreon goes to paying the bills right here to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network and all of the wonderful shows here up and running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that out of the way, time to jump into the good stuff. And the good stuff begins when we introduce the host himself onto the program. Welcome him back here for this special Thanksgiving edition. You guys know who I'm talking about. Welcome back, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, so good to have you back, and happy Thanksgiving. Well, thank you, Ray. Same to you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. I hope you guys, I hope you have a lot to be thankful for. And, I'm thankful uh, for all eight of my kids. They're all happy and healthy. There you go. I'm, I've am i got my two sons who are on us home together, and I'm telling you, life couldn't be better. I don't, maybe, I, I, I haven't tried the idea of even having uh, like six more, but oh. two I've got are pretty, <laughs> pretty darn good for me. So uh, happy Thanksgiving. Well, back guys, at- we've got so much to talk to or talk about here this week on the show. But before we get moving, I just wanted to note here, it being Thanksgiving time, that I am so thankful to Mr. Florida Wrestling himself, Barry Rose, super fan for connecting me with you, Bob, because Barry, he connected with me for some other non-related things. And during the conversations, he brought up your name. And I assume maybe he did something similar with you in regards to me and Bob, we connected. And from there, the rest, as they say, is history. So I'm very thankful that, you know, to Barry and of course to you for sharing your life story with us all. Well, Barry is an old friend now. I've got friends that go back uh, in 1960. Baron von Raschke and I were in the Army together. He he wasn't a Baron. He was German, (laughs) but he was an American citizen. And so he's old but gold. Uh, And you, Ray, are new but true. Uh, Barry is is someone I've known for a while. Uh, I got to say, he's truly a friend. Anybody that knows Barry Rose and who Barry has time for, that's all I need to know. 
to know that that person is a good person and someone I can trust. So uh, thank you, uh, Barry, if you're listening to this. And happy thanks you giving to you and your family, too. All right. Well said there. Uh, so before we get rolling with this week's show, lots to talk about, guys. I already promised maybe a couple of junkyard dog stories along the way. Lots of other things to touch on. But before we get there, Bob went back and the perfectionist that he is, listened to the last show and caught a, a slip in, in something that he said last week. I caught it, too, but I knew what he meant. So no big deal. But Bob wants to set the record straight here this week. Well, yeah, for anyone listening out there. uh you heard me say that we were talking about comparing amateur and professional wrestling in terms of popularity. And I was using an example of buildings in Mexico City, where the Olympics were, that during the Olympics, a building that would seat maybe 5,000 people wasn't always full for the amateur. And we're talking about gold medal matches, for example. And whereas the, the professional wrestling venue would hold two, three, four, five times that many people, what I meant to say was up to 25,000. What I said was up to 25. So it was like well, Memphis Wrestling Studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, he's impressed that 25 people did show up. So I wanted, I didn't want you out there to be confused about what I said and also to be thinking that maybe I'm confused about what I said. So I wanted to correct that. Thank you for letting me do that, Ray. Oh, don't thank me. I mean, it didn't bother me. I knew what you meant. But I, I appreciate the perfectionist in you because I have that somewhere in me as well. Believe me, especially when it comes to producing and editing shows and things. So and, and research for that matter. So I, I get where you're going with it. <laughs> but uh, as, as we get rolling this week, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things before we really get going. Remember last week we found out, Bob, that your debut match took place July 29th in Fort Myers. When I read the results, it mentioned that Bob Roop was a substitute in his match versus Dick Dunn. And I'd ask you if you recalled filling in being a substitute, which you really couldn't recall. So I went into the old ads for the time. I did some digging and I found the originally announced match for July 29th was Dick Dunn versus Salvador Dominguez. So it does seem like maybe you came in and substituted last minute. I'm not really sure, but of course we all know card is always subject to change and i'd say that the fans that came out to fort myers that night they got a real treat witnessing the debut of a former olympian turn pro very cool well, well thank you i'm sure they might have been confused by what they saw because when i went out there i mean i wasn't shaking or anything but i'm sure i didn't look like the picture of confidence i didn't have the <laughs> the theatrics down uh, quite yet and right. in fact I, I never became real theatrical except dressing up my outfits a little bit i never got to the rick flair stage but you know i got once i started on the red white and blue and got that that idea then my outfits became you know rather than just a solid black tights and black boots i came up with something that with help and suggestions in fact, Harry Smith, a pro wrestler who uh, owned a gym in Tampa, he was nice enough to have some outfits. He had a connection where I got some outfits made that probably would have cost three. They were like uh, athletic suits, a top, top and, and bottom. Right. Bell bottom with the red, white, and blue. I got three of them. One white with red and blue uh, lining, one red with white and blue lining, one blue with white and red lining. And um, they probably would have cost me, oh, 300 bucks a piece to have made. I think I paid $100 to have all three of them. And Harry, Harry did that. And so 
anybody out there, Harry, I'm sure it's long gone, but anybody out there who knew him or or might be of his uh, family, uh, I'm thinking nice, real nice things about Harry. Oh, very cool. And if anybody out there can make something like that, please get a hold of me because I want one of those. <laughs> uh, but the show will go on. And, I'll, you know, I already sent you a message about this earlier, Bob. And this is kind of funny. But over on Facebook, a Florida wrestling fan by the name of Donnie Zent mentioned this in response to our recent Puerto Rico riot story. Uh, Mr. Zent replied to a post of ours by saying, he said, riots. I remember one in the Fort Lauderdale National Guard Armory. And Bob was in the middle of it all. This would be back somewhere in the 1970s, Bob. He goes on to say, I don't remember the year, but what happened was in the armory, sometimes the heels would come out of the dressing room and watch some of the matches. Can you verify that, Bob? Would you guys come out and watch some of the matches in Fort Lauderdale? Yeah, there was uh, there was an area back there where there were no chairs or, or bleachers or anything, and people could, could approach you, but, um, you know, the heels would discourage anybody from we didn't sign autographs for example you, right. you let you get let people get too close that way but, away. yeah yeah but you go out if you, you know especially when i was working in the office i wanted to watch the matches that was part of my job sure was you know you want to see if a booking you made in fact i was booking fort lauderdale i think at, at least one time when i worked there harley harley was the head booker i was assistant booker he uh the same night we ran orlando we ran West Palm Beach, and so uh, um, Harley took Orlando, which was about uh, 150 miles closer than Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> and so I was running Fort Lauderdale, and then the other night was, uh, Friday night was Tallahassee and uh, Fort Lauderdale, and both of those are about 250 miles, but he ended up taking uh, Tallahassee, I ended up taking Fort Lauderdale, and because I was running, I was there doing the towns. He also had me book the towns. In other words, make the matches and crumb up with the angles and then create the TV matches to try to, you know, accentuate or heat up or, uh, do, you know, to try to make the story, move the story forward. Right. To try to, you know, have people get interested in what you were doing in those those towns. So, yeah, I would be out there watching the matches because, um, you know, I wanted them. If two guys, sometimes guys could be good workers. But the styles clashed or something, or there was just no chemistry or something right. that you could tell because the audience will tell you. If there's no reaction and people are, you know, a lot of them are getting up and going, getting drinks and whatever during the match, you know that it's not getting over. So you think, well, I won't book that one again. So, yeah, I, I would be out there. And the art of a good booker, everybody, he actually goes out and pays attention to what's going on, what's getting over and what's not. He's not writing things down on paper and telling you that, you have to like it. So very, very cool there. Uh, <laughs> Donnie goes on, though. He said, Bob, you, was watching, and one of the spectators pulled a knife on one of the heels. He doesn't recall which heel it was, but he says, Bob grabbed the guy and sent him through a bunch of folding chairs. I had to pop for that. He said he sent him through there at ringside. Then all hell broke out in the crowd. He said they called the police. They had to break everything up. There were chairs flying everywhere. I was just trying to find a safe place, says Donnie Zent. Well, uh, Donnie, uh, I just a couple of minutes ago, I just testified that my mind is working. I'm correcting my own mistakes here. I'm sorry, my friend. I don't remember that. And frankly, I think I would. Uh, okay. Something that that extreme. You know, uh, Ray, you and I talked. I was talking about a gun story, but I got another knife story. 
Well, this this is uh, we're going to fast forward about ten years uh, up in Knoxville. We were in uh, I believe it was Johnson City, and Ron Wright was. Uh, we had talked about Ron before. Ron, he was from that right that area. He wasn't number from one Knoxville. hillbilly. Yeah, he was. He's from up there, and there was something going on. There was a guy that was giving Ron, uh, like in the community, was giving Ron trouble. And also uh, Don Wright, his brother Don was there too. Mm-hmm. So I'm out there outside of the heel dressing room. Before the matches even get started, Don goes down to the ring and gets in the ring like he's going to say something. Then he jumps out. He grabs this guy from ringside and drags him all the way back up the aisle, back to where his back is protected. I mean, he he was quick about it too. The guy was a little bit smaller than him, but Ron was was Ron was strong. He dragged the guy back there. He he put the guy down on the floor and he he kicks him a couple times. And he's saying, "Well, the guy wants to stick his hand in his pocket." I'm I'm watching this. I'm horrified because I'm thinking. I mean, I just haven't seen anything like this before. And I'm thinking, lawsuit, lawsuit, lawsuit. Uh, you know, I had no idea what was going on. And so the guy goes to get in his pocket. Ron stomps him right in the face. I mean, just lifts his, his foot up and just stomped the guy. And I'm telling you, we were at a place where about three-quarters of the people in the building could see us. And so he stomps this guy. And, I mean, the guy's hand came out of his pocket, and he's bleeding. And the dressing room exit, where there were bleachers outside on both sides of that aisle and about four or five feet away. And there was a guy, and this guy was about row five or six up. So if you stood up and you were looking, and he was standing there, he was, you would be looking at his knees. And this guy is standing up there, and he's saying, why don't you try this, some of that with me? And he's, I look up, it's a big guy. I mean, like uh, maybe 250 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's got a knife in his hand. Mm-hmm. Well, Ron was busy. I think Ron was still busy stomping uh, his victim. And Don Wright. <laughs> Climbs up. He gets. He goes over and climbs up. I couldn't believe it. This guy's got a knife about two inches from his face, and he climbs. He's looking at the guy, and he climbs up and gets us up and backs that guy. The guy backed up, and he backed him with the knife. He backed him all the way down the aisle, and the guy ended up taking off. I couldn't believe it. I thought wow. you got to. I, I said, man, you got to be out of your mind. I said, what are you guys thinking? <laughs> he said, Bob, down here. You can't let people get away with, uh, you know, disrespecting you because if you do, everybody's going to do it. We got a lot of heat. We got a lot of heat down here. We don't need any paybacks, you know. And uh, but can you imagine? Can anybody out there listening? Can you imagine? I don't care how tough you are. <laughs> you can be Mr. Muhammad Ali and Bruce Lee put together. And uh, but the guy's got a knife, and while you're climbing up the aisles, he's got it in your face. Uh, you know, he's yeah. Your hands are busy holding on to the seats to climb up, and he's got the knife about three inches from your face. Uh, I couldn't believe it, but you know, I ended up with nothing but respect for those guys. And you know, some of you people said, "Oh, they're crazy." Yeah, but crazy like a fox because they were right. We had a, a little segue. We had a tough man contest up there. The guy who won it. Weighed about 175 pounds, and there was a lot of heavyweight. The guys weighed 300. The guy that won it, this tough man contest we put on, he, he weighed about 175 pounds. He had two bullet wounds in and a knife, a big knife slash. And he was a nice guy. I mean, he was just a regular guy. until when he went out to fight, I said, well, what, what, are, what are those 
I see that looks like a nice scar. I said, what are those other two? He said, oh, I got shot. I got shot a couple of times. I said, oh. I said, well, did you win the fight? He said, yeah, I did. Wow. So, you should have seen I the other guy. <laughs> yeah, I believed him after I saw what he did out in the ring. Wow. And see, that's another thing. I always use that as an example to myself. Don't let appearances fool you. Just because a guy's not great big, tight sleeves on his shirt so his big biceps are showing, and he's huffing and puffing, and he's strutting around like he's tough, you really don't need to worry about that guy. It's a guy over uh, watching him from across the room who's quiet and has kind of got a little smile on his face thinking, well, you know, I take that big guy and stick his head where it don't shine, you know, in about a half a second. And I tell you, some of the wrestlers that got into, it got into scraps and bars it wasn't who you think they uh, the, who you would think if you were look, picking the people in the bar who was going to knock a wrestler on his butt. You wouldn't pick the guys that actually were the ones that did it, because the wrestlers wouldn't mess with the guys that looked suspect. They thought they were going to be able to elbow <laughs> right. these little littler people around and get away with it. Right. And they, you know, they were patient. A lot of times, the wrestler really had to push it to get them to react. But when they did, they they did it well. They did a good job. Did it all, all right. <laughs> I think I segued twice from uh, the knife in Fort Lauderdale. We went all the way up to Johnson City or in Tennessee and or Kentucky, wherever that's at. And uh, <laughs> uh, then we went down to where did we go? Oh, you took me down to, uh, yeah, the knife fight. So where do we go from here? Well, you tease telling the gun story. I don't know if you want to save that for another day now, but you've already let the cat out of the bag. There's probably a lot of people chomping at the bit like, wait a minute, you said something about a gun. So they might want to hear that one as well. If you got the time right now. We maybe we could squeeze that one in. Of course. Well, it's not it's not a big suspenseful story, except put it still yourself involves in my, a gun, Bob. <laughs> put yourself in my place. Uh, we when we worked in Miami, we, the my, buildings we worked at in Miami, one was a Jackie Gleason Theater. The other building we worked in was a convention center. Mm-hmm. Both times where we parked, there was always police there, off duty Miami policemen or Fort Lauderdale, whatever from the area. So that our, they watched our cars back there to make sure nobody came back there and, you know, trashed our cars, slashed our tires. And so, but they also had a, at the convention center, they had a little auditorium on the side. The big area that they, we wrestled in would seat maybe 15,000 people. This little side venue only seat about 4,000. And, you know, which is a good enough house if you sell out. But, and we had a show in there. So you didn't park in the, in the back. Uh, where all the cops were, you parked out in the parking lot by the side, and you walked in, and there. Uh, I went there fairly early in the day. There wasn't anybody around. A few cars in the parking lot. I got there a couple hours early because, again, I was running the show. And there was a guy out there in uh, his military jacket, that, that fatigue jacket, that green-gray jacket that they wear. I should have uh, I should have recognized it and been, been more alert, but I walked by the guy. I mean, I was maybe 10 feet away, and I heard this click, and uh, I turned and looked at him, and this guy had the old 1912 pistol, the famous military pistol that's still being used. And he's got it pointed at my head, and his hand, you know, if his hand had been shaking, I would have been scared enough with that, but he wasn't, his hand wasn't shaking. He was rock solid, and he said, what I had heard was he was cocking the pistol. And he said, I'll blow your brains out. And uh, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I, uh, I made an instant decision, and that was just to turn around and keep walking. Uh, but I tell you, time slows down. It's, each step seemed like it took five minutes. 
of course, uh, if he he didn't even shoot at me, I could say he didn't shoot at. And uh, Nick Bachwick always said, any any story worth telling is worth embellishing. I can embellish it and say, oh, well, yeah, he shot at me four times, but I dodged and he missed, and so, uh, and then I beat him up. No, no, I managed to walk. You know, and the really the really commendable thing that I can, I was in good enough physical shape. I managed not to foul my britches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't soil Sorry. yourself at the very least. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure that's the segue you want to take, right? No, so no, no. so but, did uh, you yeah. ever figure out why this guy did this to you? Was it or were you in the middle of a, a big feud with someone at the time? Were they, you know, sticking up for the baby face? What was the deal with this? Well, it was in the middle of the uh the Steve Kern angle where I oh, called yeah. his father the POW for eight that years. Would, that would I called his father a coward. Uh, yeah, right. that, that was a huge, huge, big, big deal back, back when that took place. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, I was crazy to do it. We were, Steve and I were both green. Otherwise we'd have never even thought, no, he didn't have anything. And like, sorry, Steve, I'm not dissing you, but Steve didn't have, he didn't, his life wasn't at risk, but the heel was whoever it was. Right. Yeah. We survived it. And, um, the day after we did it on TV, I went out and bought a, you know, you talk about overkill. I didn't have any weapons. I bought a shotgun and a three fifty seven Magnum pistol. Well, that'll do uh, it to you, man. <laughs> well, Jody Hamilton told me I should. He said, Bobby, he said, I've had plenty of heat where, you know, we had people chase us out of town at 100 miles an hour trying to catch us up and, you know, set our cars on fire and us inside it. You should have told uh, Jody, <laughs> at least you wear a mask. They know yeah. exactly what I look like. <laughs> yeah. And he said, but. He said, I've never done anything that hot. He said, if you aren't armed, he said, if you aren't armed, son, you need to get armed. That sounds like the assassin to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots of great advice you've gotten over the years. That would be one of them, I suppose. You, you over, Maybe a little bit of overkill there, grabbing both. But hey, man, you know, hey, you're still here today. So I guess you never ran into the guy again. No, I'm well, to, to boot, my girlfriend at the time. This was before I met the woman I ended up marrying and being with for 43 years. But I had a girlfriend. She, We lived together, and she came home, and she said, "What? what's going on? She was working at uh, at Elgin Air Force Base out there in Tampa. I think it's, or maybe it was McDill. And uh, she uh, was working in the uh, canteen in the beer hall. And she said that uh, she was a hostess, and, and uh, when times were slow, her, she only had there. It was small. There was only a couple of waitresses in there. When, when they needed, it, she would also carry trays of beer or whatever. She would serve the beer. She said she'd walked up to a table and um, heard the guys talking about finding out where Bob Roop lived and throwing one of those anti-tank, those mines, those uh, landmines that they used to black blow up Sherman tanks. Throw one of those through the through the living room window. Holy shit. And that's what, she, yeah. And I said, I, you know, if she was smart to the business, but I mean, I, she, I knew it couldn't be a rib, but that she over, that's what she heard and told me. And that's, that's when I went out and bought the weapons. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty hot. Well, luckily not everybody follows up on what they say, especially in this instance. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm kind of grateful for that. Thank you. Let's uh, let's <laughs> let's let's take the biggest segue yet, uh, Bob, and let's move away from violence and move into the holidays. Let's talk a little holidays. How about that? All guys? right. So we'll talk holidays and wrestling and wrestling on the holidays. 
or at least the major holidays. I got a few questions for you here, just things that came to my head. Hopefully a lot of other people will enjoy these questions as well. And I wrote holidays, specifically Thanksgiving and Christmas, were many times the Southern Territory's biggest shows of the year. Uh, you having dabbled in promoting yourself, but certainly working as, as a booker many times over. Why do you think that was? Why do you think the, the major holidays drew so much? Because you would think that are probably the greatest day to run a show, but that, that proved to be wrong, at least in the Southern Territories. Well, the main reason is because uh, people are off. They're on, you know, they're not having to go to work. So, right. like, uh, you can run a show on Saturday afternoon and Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, and you can work, you know, if you have the, uh, the, the location or the buildings for it, the locations, you can definitely run every night during Thanksgiving because you can run a big show. I mean, on a Thursday show, uh, maybe you wouldn't book a big card. Uh, if you had not, if you had a big building, you might, but you, normally you wouldn't. You wouldn't like have Andre the Giant, for example. You wouldn't try to get Andre the Giant. And believe me, during the holidays, everybody was trying to get Andre, or you know, have have uh, lady wrestlers and you know, little people wrestlers, and uh, you know, whatever extra added attractions they could get to make it look like a big card. Because again, people were home. Uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, both people. Were have loosened up their wallets a little bit because they're spending money for Thanksgiving uh, dinner and, and uh, for Christmas Christmas presents and, right. you know, getting the house decorated and everything. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good time of the year to draw business. We're always running, I remember always running a show on Sunday, even though even if they're going back to work on Monday, for some reason, uh, they'd run Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening and Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. And places, again, you have to have the buildings. You know, you have to have the place to run. You couldn't run two shows in the same venue. At least we couldn't, and we didn't. Maybe there's a way to do that. I'm not sure. But, yeah, well, here's why you couldn't. Um, what am I thinking about? The reason you couldn't is because you'd need two different crews. You couldn't run a hot angle in the afternoon and then, you know, try to run the same thing that evening. And, you know, if somebody got hurt or laid out well they, what they're coming back in just a few hours right that that doesn't work so here i'm practicing booking on well or in the air yeah it was the holidays were a good time uh, i mean it was a good time to run now on the other on the other side of it for the boys you just got used to now it wasn't just holidays you missed wedding anniversaries your kids soccer games your kids violin recital, your kids' birthdays, you missed your wife's birthday. If you were booked, you had to go. And you couldn't say, well, look, uh, I want to be on top, but I want to take three days, you know, every other week I want to take two days off. You couldn't do it because if you're on top, you're on top in every town. I mean, you're hot in every town. Right. And you can't, you can't just say, well, you know, I just – so you're committed. If, you, if they work eight days a week, uh, then, and I mean, well, how do you work eight days a week? Well, let's say eight shows a week, two on Sunday, say, uh, that's what you do. And that's, that's the way it goes. You don't have to be there. I mean, you can go, you can leave and go somewhere else. And I did in cases where it got too onerous. Um, I was reading some history today on some guys I was thinking about talking about somewhere down the line. And, uh, I think it was, uh, maybe Flair or somebody was talking about, uh, the traveling, getting you know, getting too onerous. Yeah. Anyway, uh, 
holidays are great for promoters. It's terrible for the wrestlers. And it showed it. I mean, guys would come in on an afternoon show sometimes, still hung over and half bloop from the night before. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could you could tell it. You could see it. The only thing, the only reason you got away with it was because, you know, they're pro wrestlers. And so a guy's uh, half in the bag. I mean, at least back in, in our day, they weren't being given, uh, you know, uh, nobody was seen as a sterling, upright uh, champion of, you know, clean living and, you know, not like a John Cena or, you know, someone like that. You, you know, you had all kinds of sleazy gimmicks and guys, well, guys, who, you know, I, I'm, I wrote in one of the book about the skunk man, you know, a guy <laughs> pretending to be a skunk. But you had uh, you had all kinds of people that whatever the gimmick was would would work. And if they were, you know, if they were nasty and. You know, filthy, and uh, I mean, I'm trying to think, who were the two motorcycle guys? Kenny, one of them got shot by a bunch of uh, uh, Don Fargo, Don yeah. Fargo and yeah. Kenny Maine. They were working uh, as motorcycle, like Har uh, uh, Hell's Angels. Okay. They didn't yeah. have they didn't have that particular logo on their jacket, but they had something on there that made them look like they And they were, well, those guys never, they would go out and work. And sometimes bleed. They, you know, they get juiced. They'd be bleeding, and they wouldn't take a shower. They'd go back, put their top on. You know, they brush, they rustle in their jeans and their shirts, and they, they didn't take their vest out there. They they go back, put their vest back on, and you know, put a bandaid or whatever over their cut, wipe some of the blood off your face, and go out to the bar. And that was their gimmick. So you talk about nasty. You know, they'd go a week or two without showering. Um, so, you know, and I, I mean, I'm not saying they personally were, you know, think, well, that's what we really want to do because we are swine. Uh, that was just the gimmick. And Don Fargo, one of the most interesting characters you'll ever meet. I've, I've read, I've read his book. I mean, uh, and I've seen his shoot interview as well. So it's certainly quite an interesting character. I've, I don't know if you've ever heard the story. Uh, with the the nail and his and his genitalia. Yeah. Okay. Oh, of course. Of okay. course. Okay. I, I yeah, I've wrote a couple known. stories. Okay. Well, I how about how about uh, dragging a concrete block down the street behind a, a motorcycle, a concrete block where it, while it's attached to a part of his anatomy mm -hmm. that hangs right below the waist. There you go. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, uh, quite the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly one of the top uh, when it comes to just crazy stories. They never end to this the stuff you hear, and it's all true from what, what I gather. I certainly wouldn't doubt it anyway. Well, you know, on the on the flip side, I mean, uh, Fargo's children. I, I went to college, and you know, and his personal life, he was apparently fairly, at least, could be uh, like responsible citizen but man i'm telling you as far as his life in the business what a character had some of the guys i'm telling you because i can i i have i grew up with a straight life you know middle class go to school graduate go to college a while go into service right. you know nothing too extreme uh and then you get into you know where guys are talking about Dragging a concrete block down down the road attached to their privates. Yeah. You know, what? <laughs> say, say that again. What was that? <laughs> In fact, Fargo was telling a story down at the Gulf Coast for a year. I had my, my oldest son 
No, it wasn't Fargo. It was, uh, yeah, it was Fargo talking to Frankie Kay, and you talk about some stories. And uh, But I was listening to a few minutes ago, but I, my son Ryan was there with me. He was uh, going back. He was going further. He was going down to uh, Florida for spring break. He just stopped there. We drove down there together. He was going to get on a bus and go the rest of the way. And we were there for the day at the at the Gulf Coast reunion. And Frankie and Don were out at the meeting place. They were out on a little veranda uh, in private talking. I ran and got my son Ryan. I said, you got to come out here and listen to this. Because he never heard anything like that before. <laughs> sure. And, yeah. Uh, but because uh, I wanted to see there's another side to life, you know. And why, I mean, I, I don't know if you find it interesting. Some people might be saying, well, that's about the most repulsive thing I think you could ever show me. Dad, I lost every bit of respect. What little I had left for you is completely gone now. You know, showing me that crap. But no, I knew I knew that Ryan would, I'm not saying enjoy it. I knew he'd find it interesting. You know, he's a smart guy. He's got a good mind. Uh, you don't hear that kind of stuff. You don't hear that kind of stuff. Well, you hear about I mean, it all the time from people who tell about other people doing it. You don't hear about it from the guys who actually no, right, did it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, you never disappoint, Bob. Last week it was Terry Funk half-naked, drinking beer, running from the police with eight feet of sparks flying behind the car. This week it's Don Fargo pull, pulling a, a concrete, maybe a cinder block or something, on a motorcycle attached to his, his junk. So it's just... <laughs> so. Please, folks. I swear, I swear, I'm not twisted. I, I'm, not, I'm sorry. I, no, I'm, a, you, I'm a straight arrow now. I'm bus attendant on a school bus. Believe me. I'm, this can is you all imagine just trying to tell this story to the people you work with now? <laughs> just look at oh, you. No, this never no, happened. No, no, no. No, I'd never. They'd never let me anywhere near a school bus ever again. <laughs> oh my goodness, but. It's uh, it's insane how far away we've moved from talking about the holidays at this point. My God. <laughs> well, you started it. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm never I'm never going to turn down a Don Fargo story. No. Oh man. There's simply not enough uh, of his stuff out there. I mean, just the, the stories. So I'm glad that one made the light of day. Um, so, anyways, let's go back to the holidays and piss everybody off now. <laughs> Um, I had a note here and I guess you kind of answered it already with what you were talking about with you just, it was just another day to a, to a degree where you guys just had to keep matriculating down the field, so to speak, just keep putting on the shows and going out and doing what you do best. But I was wondering, do you recall any of the boys ever refusing to work a specific day, a holiday? They just stood their ground and then maybe they paid for it or it just, that just never really happened back then. No, I uh, never had. If you, you got to quit, you got to give your notice. I mean, they're not going to say no. You, you know, promoters could not let you dictate uh, when you were going to work. Because well, if, you, if they did it for you, they were going to have to do it for everybody. All right. Because so everybody, everybody had a kid's birthday. Everybody had a wedding anniversary. Everybody had a, you know, something that they wanted to get off for. Right. They couldn't. They couldn't. They, no. And the other thing was, and I'm sorry for the boys out there listening to this and my fellow wrestlers, but my generation of wrestlers were owned by the promoters. We had no bargaining power whatsoever. There was no union. One of the reasons I got in trouble and ran opposition to Ron Fuller was trying to start a union. Football had it, basketball had it, baseball had it, and all of a sudden these people, all these players became millionaires. Well, if we'd had a union in wrestling, a bunch of wrestlers, they might not have become millionaires, but guys that were making ten grand would have been making a hundred grand. 
Well, they probably and, would have been taken care of overall better, not just financially, but maybe medical or something to that degree anyway. Exactly. We never had medical insurance, uh, even though we talked about this before. We were considered self-employed or individual contractors. I think you corrected me. And everything we were told to do, we were told everything, everything. Well, everything. I mean, they didn't tell you what kind of clothes you could wear, well, though, if you walked in in a jockstrap or something, they'd probably say something to you. But, you know, they basically, you'd be here a certain time. And if you're late and continue to be late, you get fined. And if you keep saying, you know, you'll get fired. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they, they basically, and, and don't get me wrong. It wasn't a promoter to stand there with a whip, but the whip was there. It just, you didn't see it. They were nice. Right. I, we're talking about Terry Funk. One time I had with Terry was, in the dressing room with uh, Eddie Eddie Graham, uh, Buddy Fuller, and a couple other promoters were there, and Terry, all, promoter himself, out in Amarillo, but Terry started ribbing on a square, and he's he's laughing. He's saying, "Yeah, oh, yeah, it's funny. It's amazing how much money you can steal, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you got yeah, yeah." Oh. And he's laughing. You know, everybody's oh, laughing. Funny. Oh, the, it is, isn't it? The promoters are laughing. I'm looking at Terry. I knew what he was doing. I thought, oh, man. He was having fun, too. Sure they he very, was. Those guys were going, oh, Jesus, shut the hell up, Terry. And, but he said, oh, yeah. You, you got, yeah, you need a new car. I know you do. You only got hey, four. guys, remember <laughs> this scam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, man. It's like good stuff. <laughs> but, so, uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, you didn't. You you couldn't. You couldn't get time off. Let's go back to Amarillo for a second. Okay. Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham asked me to go out there for six months. You have to understand, I wasn't a con man. I don't think I am today, but I am aware of it. I know how it works. And at the time, I had no. I I mean, I wasn't. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't stupid. I just I saw things in black and white. Eddie Graham said, "Do me a favor and go out to Amarillo for six months." I said, okay. From day one, I don't care what happened. If they made the champion of the world out there, I was making three, $4,000 a week. I was only going to stay six months. Because anybody say, other wrestlers listening go, what? Are you crazy? Only reason to be in the wrestling business is to make money. You would leave something like that? Yes, I would. In fact, I did. I was making averaging 800 bucks a week when I left. Amarillo, and I went back to Florida to guarantee to make three hundred bucks a week. I took three hundred or five hundred dollar pay cut because I like Florida. I didn't like Amarillo. You were in your car all day. I mean, every day. Yeah, based on uh, those drives you were talking about last week, oh that really blew God. a lot of people's minds. You know, it's a large state, obviously, and I just didn't really put two and two together. Never thought about it because I remember Albuquerque and things like that. A lot of the other promoters working together, El Paso, of course, Gory Guerrero, but you had Nick Roberts and and uh, Don Slatton and and things like that. So there was a lot of different towns, and you guys had to make all of those crazy drives. I was thinking about the Mid South area being crazy. You know, everybody talks about those trips being you know, you know, mind numbing at times. You just kind of become a zombie. But yeah, even in, in Amarillo, that sounds like some crazy driving. When Florida, not so much. Just the way things were in Florida at the time, it just sounds like probably more of a place to be than just driving through the deserts. Yeah. Well, uh, back to the the main reason I wanted to tell this story was that when it got to be like five months, I started talking. They had a guy named Herman Gust, was I think a brother-in-law or something. He was a relative by marriage to, um, I think, senior. Um, I'm not sure. But anyway... He was like uh, the office manager or whatever. 
but I'll talk to him about wanting to talk about, uh, you know, my my business, you know, about my booking. He say, well, no, I, I can't talk to you. I I, I don't have the authority. You got to you got to talk to senior. So I'd go to senior and senior. I when I finally would catch him somewhere. Uh, might be two or three days later. I I talk to him. He say, oh no. He said, no, I, I, I'm not handling that. You got to talk to Terry. So when I see Terry next, I go talk to him. He said, oh no, no. I so finally I got all three of them together, and I said, well, now that you're together. Can I talk to you about this? He said, no, uh, Junior's handling that now. Dory Funk Jr. was the world champion at the time, and he was out traveling around the world wrestling with the, with the NWA title. Right. So I waited until he came in. I laid, <laughs> laid in wait for him to where I found out. Did you set up a roadblock <laughs> for Terry? <laughs> good, good memory, yeah. I waited until they were all together, and I said, okay. Now I've got you all together. I need you, I want you to know I'm leaving in three weeks or two weeks. By the time it was maybe two weeks. And they, you know, they couldn't believe it, but they had to take it. I mean, I wasn't being featured like the main event, but I was being, I, they had put some effort in to get me over. And if somebody had done that to me, if I was a booker there and somebody other wrestler, I would be, I would be upset with them. Right. But they had to understand I was still green. They knew that part of it. And I told him the truth. Eddie asked me to come out here for six months as a favor. You know, and the other thing was, you know, I was still married and, and had a son that were back in Florida. So that was another reason to go back. So, you know, so, and so when oh, they you left like, Florida for Amarillo, you, you didn't pack up the family. It was just. No, I was only going to be there six months. And okay. I figured I could be able, I'd be able to get back to Florida, which I, I never did. But I mean, for like a month, you know, after a month or two, I could come back and see my boy and my wife and I weren't getting along that well. But I love my son dearly. And uh, so, yeah. And then I don't know how much heat it got. But when I tried to go back to Florida, Buddy Fuller was uh, I, I tried to get the booker, two or three people. Finally, the only person that talked to me was Buddy Fuller, because he knew what I wanted to talk about. Senior had called him, I'm sure, and talked to Eddie. Said, Eddie, what the hell did you do sending this guy out here? You know, Bob, we got him over. We, You know, we're making him money. He's making eight, 900 bucks a week. And he just came and gave us notice. What's going on? <laughs> and Eddie said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said he told you to ask you a favor for six months. He said the six months is up. He wants to leave. Come on, talk to him, do something. So when I called and tried to talk to Eddie, oh, Eddie was never available. So finally, the Not only convenient. guy, I, yes, the only guy I could talk to was uh, was Buddy Fuller. And Buddy said, well, I don't have any room for you. And I said, well, how about if uh, you book, can you book me a couple times a week? Just say once or twice a week. I, I don't care. I'll do jobs, whatever you need. I Put me on the first mat. He said, "Well, the most I can make you is three hundred bucks a week." Now he knew I was making eight, nine hundred bucks a week out there. He said, "The most I can make you is three hundred bucks a week." I said, "I'll take it." Well, <laughs> but he didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, when I got back to Florida, it took about uh, two weeks before I was uh, shooting up the cards. Let's put right. it that way. Because sure. by the time I'd been a heel out in Amarillo, and I'd learned a little bit, and mm -hmm. I was better. I mean, I had six months of of you know grooming somewhere else so i could come yeah. back and i was different you know a little was, bit of seasoning from a different territory which was very important back in those days to kind of jump around and learn all that yeah and you know senior didn't hold a grudge because uh, a couple of well, a year or so later it was 72 i was in england 
I got a call. Stan was a British promoter, the guy that booked me in uh, to almost get murdered in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's, oh, that's another. Anyway, that's I can't segue out this one. Uh, I was staying at his house. Stayed there a month when me and my girlfriend stayed there a month. And you know why? For some reason, that guy never thought about asking us to leave. I can't figure out why until years later when Adnan Casey told me that, uh, told uh, Mike Mooneyham in an interview that Saddam Hussein was the promoter over there, which nobody ever told me about. Um, and th- that, uh, you know, I, by inference, I realized that all the things that happened to me weren't accidents and that they actually were trying to kill me. Uh, that's when my attitude. When I started back, I was thinking about now I understand why that English promoter never thought about asking me to leave his guest bedroom with me and my girlfriend with with the idea that maybe I just think about it and kill him, you know, so. uh, You were talking to Dory while you were out in England or out out in Europe, though? I was in Leeds, England. He called. I got a phone call. The the English, George Rovisco was his name. The English promoter said, there's an American uh, promoter who wants to talk to you. Hand me the phone. It was Dory. It was Dory Sr. He said, uh, would you come back here? We'd like you to come back. We'll pay you 800 bucks a week. And uh, I said, no. No, thank you, sir. I appreciate the offer, but, you know, I can't live in my car. And, uh, yeah, he understood. And, you know, and Terry didn't hold it against me either. I worked with him uh, years later. I worked not long after. I worked with him six months or so in a, every week in a row at, in West Palm Beach. And he had many chances if he had wanted to, in some, you know, some way get some kind of payback. Yeah. He never did. I mean, I, I guess they just accepted it. I mean, I look at it now. My God, what outrageous, unprofessional behavior on my part. But, you know, <laughs> Eddie knew how I thought, you know. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he knew. Uh, he said six months. Well, um, six months is up, and money was not. You know, I to this day I think people think I should be embarrassed to say that money was not my driving force. I wanted to travel, and I didn't, but not not ten hours every day in a car <laughs> over go. the same over the same roads, back and forth and back and forth, staring no, at that, that same dent in the road that Terry put there, dragging the dragging the rim down there each yeah. and every day. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, <laughs> watch your tarantulas cross the road, looking at the cactus and the sagebrush, and oh, what glorious scenery! It looked like a you know, it looked like. <laughs> You you die of heat heat stroke and frustration with a if your car broke down <laughs> within a half hour or so so yeah not my idea of the and they're in Florida think about Florida you know I mean uh, palm trees you know nice beaches well you know uh, plenty of water you know out there in Amarillo there's not much water around Florida's water everywhere you know you live Tampa Bay you live in Tampa there's Tampa Bay there's clear water there's a Gulf. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you got all kinds of water around. You got canals. Eddie Graham had a canal right behind his house where he could put his boat in. He lived on one of those canals down there. But, uh, yeah. So, okay. I forgot. I have absolutely no idea where we started. Oh, it was holidays, wasn't it? Right. You're right. Well, I have one more question for you. Then we're going to move on. We're going to talk a little JYD and maybe some other things too. But, uh, now try not to laugh here because we've been doing a lot of that already, but at least until I finish the question and give me that long anyway. But did okay. any promoter, this doesn't necessarily have to be a holiday per se, but did any promoter ever do anything special for you guys on a Thanksgiving, on a holiday in general, a turkey, a holiday party? And I know this is a very silly question when you talk about wrestling promoters, but 
maybe a bonus? No. <laughs> not that I mean, I'm not saying it never happened. It, right. I never not that you I would never No, I was never part of that. You know, and um when I worked with Ole Anderson from eighty two to eighty five, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was the boss and but he paid guys well. You know, he wasn't a thief. Uh he paid guys well. I mean, there guys are going up to Ohio and making two grand a week. Uh, uh, Brownie West, a referee, made seventeen hundred bucks one week. Referee. Wow. wow. So, you know, what do you do? the Ohio shots? Yeah, he made the 17 in Ohio. And and, in Georgia, we did a week in Ohio, then a week in Georgia. Mm -hmm. That's the way the schedule. The week in Georgia, he probably made, I don't know, four or five hundred. But, you know, you put them together, you know, you're making like a thousand, twelve hundred bucks a week. For a referee, that's pretty good money. I mean, I, and don't get me wrong, I'm not denigrating referees. It's just that they don't pay them well. They're not paid well. I'm sorry for that. Good referees are invaluable. They should be getting good. In fact, everybody should be getting good pay. Well, we won't go into you know how money can can ruin <laughs> right. people. No, I just I was just looking. You know, I I did something. Well, it's, I wouldn't call it crazy, but it was a little tedious. I went back to every calendar year that you worked, and I figured out what day Thanksgiving fell on every year from 1969 all the way to the mid 80s. Then I cross referenced that with the available results of those dates. Involving you, of course. So I looked around and I mean, you worked a number of territories on Thanksgiving Day, Florida, Amarillo, Knoxville, Georgia. You worked the Superdome for Bill Watts in the Mid-South on Thanksgiving. You even worked for Angelo Poffo in the ICW on Turkey Day. So I just I, I was wondering, do you have any like Thanksgiving memories like those big cards like that that they did on the holidays or it was just all another day in the wrestling business? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It was just another day. Okay. It was. I mean, yeah. There's a certain, there's a certain attitude guys have. You know, of being smart to the business or like hip, like. And there are guys that are con men that are very cynical. Uh, and wrestlers like to rib each other, and and a lot of the ribs involve conning someone into believing you're going to do one thing, and then either don't do it or do something else. So, and that doesn't. But I think there's a certain amount of cynicism involved. That um, guys, it, it's I don't think it's that important, uh, or or maybe maybe there's another way of looking at that. You guys, you shut it out because maybe you have a time you when the next time you're off in the home, and that's what we do. My me and my boys, we celebrate when we're all here. I mean, sometimes if one of us is working on my oldest boy might be working on on Christmas or Thanksgiving, then we wait until the next day to get together to eat and all that. Mm-hmm. But holidays have also have also changed. They're, they're a lot more commercial than they used to be, and I don't know if they're as meaningful. And again, that might be, from my advanced age, that may be part of it. But I tell you again, from, from not, not being able to celebrate them for so long, it's not like they lost their relevance, but you saw that not celebrating them was not a big deal. Right. Think about this. Think about this way. A lot of things with with Thanksgiving and Christmas involve families getting together, who are not together the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I mean, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, right. a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling at Thanksgiving, a lot of traveling at Christmas. So, the two people I love most in the world, well, the three that my my oldest boy I love as dearly as I love anybody, 
But and he's only 250 miles away with his his wonderful. My daughter-in-law is one of the finest women I know, and their six kids are my, my grandkids are just beautiful kids. I unfortunately didn't have a a, a hand in raising my 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 oldest son. Unfortunately, my loss. Um, yeah, his too, but uh, he came through it, and we're we're fine now. But these two boys I've raised since they were, you know, they came from their mother. Uh, we're still together. I don't need to travel to be with the people I love. Mm-hmm. So we're here now. So it doesn't, every day to me is like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving. Well, it makes sense. Because I, well, I guess being is. away from everything for so long makes you appreciate everything a little more when it's all, all over with, I would, I would guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And that's another thing, a little philosophy. If, if, and thanks of, things of thinking about things you, a, a person regrets and say, oh, I wish this or that. In, in my mind, I can erase all that. I'm too lazy to be, want to be unhappy anyway. But um, what erases all that is say, if I'd done anything different, I wouldn't have what I have now. And what I have now, I'm very happy with. Uh, this life that I'm living right, living right now with my boys uh, is a nice, it's a good life. You know, I'm with people I love and love me. And, you know, it's it's nice. It's just it's perfect. I mean, our, our society's kind of, you know, fractured right now, and sometimes you know families are no longer families. But right. the three, the three of us are, and I'm sure you have the same thing with your your children because mm-hmm. a lot of them are young, younger, and still depend on you. But these boys don't depend on me anymore, and they're still we're still we're still tight. So that's that's a good thing. Well, so awesome. I don't have any I don't have any regrets because if you'd done anything different, if I'd done anything different, I wouldn't have what I what I have because. You did something ten years ago. Just instead of going left, you went right. I wouldn't be here today. Right. And some people say, "Yeah, but how do you know it wouldn't be better?" And then I say, "Well, one of the things, one of the exercises in order for me to be able to answer your question is I have to erase my boys from my life in order to contemplate what you're suggesting, something else. So if you're capable of erasing your children from your life, well, good for you. I'm not." Right. So no, I'm not thinking about anything else. Cool. I got I got everything I need right here. Totally I don't you. need. Oh yeah, and that goes well, beyond well, the holiday spirit. You know, that's the true family spirit of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be Thanksgiving or Christmas to you know love love one another. And I'm not trying to turn this into a completely different show here. But hopefully, everybody's like, "What are these guys doing?" But um, no, I, I appreciate you sharing that because you know I agree with a lot of that as well. But I'm just, you know, it's kind of interesting. I never really looked at it like that since you weren't home a lot for those holidays. It didn't really need to be a holiday. Every day was kind of like a holiday for you once you came home. So that makes sense. Well, for those, in case any of you out there, uh, you just came and tuned in just now. Back up about 20 minutes. We're talking about dragging bricks down <laughs> only, the road with your only, with only your, on your show, with Bob. Your, with your scrotum. Yes. So that that kind of that kind of uh, you know evens out as being uh, a little bit of you know a lovey dovey here. Well, you know, we'll we'll continue on with this because you know we're still heading into Christmas, so I'm sure some of this talk will come up again in the meantime. But we've got so many stories, guys. Wait till the end of the show when I run down just some of the things we're going to touch on week to week here in the. Uh, months to come uh but as we go on you know there's somebody that seems to happen to, his name happens to come up some way or another almost every week here on the show thus far and i can't see you when we're talking but it just feels like a big smile comes over your face every time this name comes up and i'm talking about the junkyard dog you seem to have some kind of a, an admiration for dog who was you know 
the star of the Mid-South Territory and beyond. He transcended that. He was over like Rover, pun intended, guys, and uh, anywhere he went. But uh, JYD, you spent a year there in the Mid-South working with Dog and some of the other talent as well, top-level talent. But JYD, he was on top that entire year there in the Mid-South. And I was wondering, do you have any really cool JYD stories? Uh, I've got one that's he's tangentially involved. But, you know, the reason I feel that way is because now, I came into uh, Mid-South as a heel, so I couldn't hang with Dog. But when we were when we were in private, and I think the first time I worked in New Orleans, I worked in New Orleans. Uh, he'd been there for, of course, a couple of years. But uh, we went out together afterwards, and he showed me a really nice time. But he, he treated me like a friend. And, you know, he was I was just starting there. I'd never been. I'd never reached a level of stardom that he had attained. Mm-hmm. But he never, that never came into that was never a part of our interaction one-on-one not because he was he realized you know I, <laughs> this is a work and this is also temporary this never this stuff doesn't last forever so you know uh he he was aware of the fact that who you meet on the way up you know you should pay attention to him because you might see him on the way down but i had done that little favor for him and he didn't forget it and i uh, i appreciate that kind of stuff now he was tangentially involved because it was had to do with a match against him on TV. I uh, we're at TV. I think we did TV, and I want to say Shreveport. The Irish have... Boys Club. Okay, and uh, Watts uh, knew I'd been a booker, and uh, I was trying to. He was he was a great booker, and uh, he had great ideas. And I just asked him if I could. Uh, he had a an upper room in this TV studio, and right. just he he was up there by himself. I asked him if I could uh, just sit in there, the other end of the room, be out of his way, and and uh, just listen to what he was what he was coming up with. And he was, you know, he was fine with it. So anyway, I had worked with Dog the week before on on television. I put him over right in the middle of the ring, and you know, Bill did something did something on this show this week after. Now he was going to do something on this show to get all my heat back. Uh, they would forget all about me losing to JYD. Well. Len Denton, uh, the grappler, was scheduled to go against great, great hand, great worker, great guy. He was scheduled to go against Dog on the first, I think it was like early in the show. He wasn't there yet. So Bill, rather than changing everything around, he called Paul Arndorf up there. And Paul was the other single heel with me. Right. He called, Paul had been there longer. And Paul was over, I think, better than I was, which was uh, fitting. Uh, he looked great. A good worker. Well, he had the look, but he was also just really aggressive. You believed, I'm not saying I didn't buy, buy you as a heel. Believe me, I did the first time I, I watched your stuff. But uh, Paul just, he had that natural heel about him, if that, yeah. if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he does. He, uh, he has some heelish, he, I'm sorry, he's gone. Rest in peace, Paul. But uh, yeah, he has some heelish tendencies uh, <laughs> in his personality. But, um, you know, look, I mean, it takes a lot of work. To look that good, so you got to give guy credit for that. So Bill called Paul up and he said, um, "Okay, I, uh, Len's not here. Paul, I need to put you with Dog. Uh, I want to have him beat you. Give me something, you know." We was asking Paul to give him a finish. Mm-hmm. He did the same thing to me the week before. He said, "Give me a finish." I gave him one, and so Paul said, "Oh, Bill, uh, <laughs> Bill, oh, Bill," and uh, Bill said, "Come on, Paul, you know." And Bill was saying, Paul, I could have you lose three times on this show, 
and have all your heat back by the end of next week's show. In fact, I could have you lose in the first match on this show and have it all back by the end of this week's show. Because we got TV, we can do whatever we want. Right. You know, and, it's, and an it's the dog. I mean, it's not like he's he's jobbing to somebody yes. on the mid card here. Exactly. And so, and yeah, this is our this is our this is our franchise baby here that we're taking care of. He's taking he's drawn for all of us. Right. So Paul just oh no, and and Bill asked him two or three times, and finally, you know, uh, Paul oh Bill, it's gonna hurt me and all that. He was talking about hurting his drawing power. Well, Bill was the one in charge of his drawing power. Right. <laughs> Who do you think you're talking to, Dean? So about that time, Bill said, I think, trying to embarrass Paul, he said, well, to give him a chance to change his mind, he said, Bobby, you said you work with him. You work with Dog last week. Will you work with him again? I said, of course. And and that was the time for Paul to say, okay, okay, Bill. I, 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 uh, please, let me, I mean, I'll do it, yeah. But he didn't. Bill said, okay, you can leave, Paul. Paul got up and walked to the door, and as he went to reach for the knob, the door opened and walked Len Denton. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. So, so Denton ends that, up taking his normal spot here, I'm yes, presuming? Okay. Yes. You know what it cost, Paul? His job? Paul? <laughs> well, uh, I know he Paul, wasn't there much longer after that time period, but I've heard he stories was, that he lost a bar fight, too, so I don't know. No, it was... Uh, Bill was going to ship both of us out a month apart and i was i was doomed to go first i mean i was slated to go first he changed his mind he said paul's gonna go first you're gonna stay the extra month i made about six thousand dollars in that month maybe nice. more and that's what paul gave up you know he might have made more he was from his job to the the like you said the man that's paying all your bills really i mean that's the uh the Golden Goose, right? That's what they referred to Hulk Hogan in the WWF, and that's really what Dog was down there in the Mid South. I mean, he was—you guys were all there, you know, putting busting your ass and, and having great matches as well. But it was really JYD drawing a lot of that crowd for sure. Oh yeah, to get the people in the building so you could have an audience to show your stuff to. Right. And 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 again, we get into psychology here. You get people to suspend their disbelief. It doesn't matter if you come into this match. And you've been beat like a drum for a year. Mm-hmm. If you get in there and you do something, and you, between you and your the guy you're working with, say it's Dog even, and you're the guy that puts up the ring, and you get in the ring and you walk up to Dog like you're gonna hand hand him a a, 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 a something to autograph or something, and he grabs he takes it and you take the pen instead of handing it to him, you jab him in the neck with it, and down he goes and you start putting the boots to him. And you're the ring guy. You never even heard. Nobody's ever even seen you before. Right. You'd have a ton of heat. Instant even heat. you might be. You might have be a hundred, weigh 120 pounds. You might not even you'd be have, able to work. <laughs> yeah, you know, dogs down there settling, grabbing his throat and gargling. People will be wanting to kill you. So I only use that extreme example to say that anybody who says, "Oh, if I lose, that means that my career is over." Now, there are there are exceptions. Andre the Giant was one. Andre should never have even gone off his feet because as long as he was the immovable object, uh, you know, I mean, you could count on him to come right. in. And when you needed somebody to come in and take on your worst, vicious, nasty heel, he was a guy that would draw, you know, because he... You know, he was unbeatable. And he always made so, that, that good, uh, I wouldn't say mystery partner, but special partner for revenge matches, too, because now I'm back with Andre by my side to get revenge right. on the heels. 
Right. And it mentioned so, a little more because Andre, like you said, for the most part, was an immovable object for most of his career, at least, except for over in Japan, a little different. I, I know early on he was taking crazy bumps. I, I refer to him as Kurt Hennig-esque bumps at time, backflip bumps, nonsensical oh, yeah. bumps in the early 70s. But I guess, you know, somewhere along the way the story goes, Vince Sr. got a hold of him and said, you got to stop doing that. You got to sell like a giant. You're a, you're a giant. You don't do yeah. that. Um, yeah, he made him made him the immovable object. You don't take any bumps. Yeah, Andre was doing drop kicks, all kinds of stuff. He's real agile. He plays soccer. You know, the guy was an athlete. And uh, you oh, know, he was everybody. tremendous talk- early on in his career. For oh. anybody that's never seen Andre before, you know, the the '80s. I mean, go on YouTube or whatever you got to do and look it up. I mean, the guy was in tremendous shape for you know the way he was built. And I mean, he was just doing crazy things back back in the early '70s stuff, especially. I mean, jumping tombstone pile drivers. I, I, if Andre, you couldn't stop him from giving it to you, but I wouldn't want to take that from Andre the Giant. <laughs> <laughs> when you know, he was the second guy to wrestle in Iraq. Um, there was I was third. The first was a uh, that wrestled this Adnan Casey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, people know Sheik Adnan. He, that's the guy we're talking about. He passed away not long ago in the last year or so. And, you know, rest in peace, Adnan. But uh, Andre was uh, the second guy to wrestle there. And the first, these were big matches. They were about a year, a year and a half apart. It wasn't like people were coming there every month. It's not like Japan where they run all the time. This was like Muhammad Ali coming in for a fight. So they had a, the British heavyweight champion. Uh, was the the first competitor and uh, uh, Andre was second. He wasn't Andre yet. That, that happened a year or two later. He was uh, oh Monster Rosamoff, right? Yeah, yeah Pere, 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 maybe even he may have even been going by yeah. his real name at that point. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I was third. So uh, years later, we were in Freeport, and uh, somehow Andre was out there in a match. I was going out there as a as his second. First, I have no idea. I didn't book it. I don't have no idea. But we were alone. It was raining, so uh, we were alone in the dressing room for oh, like half hour, which was a real privilege, you know, to get time to talk to Andre with just you and him, because you never did. You know, he always had people around him. I mean, he was he, it, it was impossible to miss the guy if he's around, and people wanted to enjoy his company. Right. Yeah, poor guy, a poor guy. He wanted he never had any privacy. So anyway, we were talking, and you know, and I I said, hey, I saw pictures of you. Uh, in Iraq, I said, how did it go over there? I said, was it dangerous for you? He said, you know, no, it was that voice. But um, apparently, they uh, treated him great. Now, he got beat in two straight falls in about five, six minutes each one, which is unbelievable. Right. I mean, to have someone have well, to sign. If he wanted to live, he really didn't have much of an option, I'd have to imagine. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm not saying I'm, that in jest, guys. I'm I'm being dead serious, by the way. Well, no, Saddam Hussein told Adnan Casey, he stopped him on the way to the ring, and he told Adnan Casey, he said, uh, Adnan, be victorious. We're, the whole country's counting on you. This man is big, but I think he's a pussy, and you can beat him. And if he hurts you in any way, he's going to get this. And Saddam Hussein opened up his coat and showed Adnan Casey, showed him the pistol on his belt. He said, I'll send him back to, uh, send him back to France in a box. So he threatened to shoot Andre if he mm. if he if he hurt Casey, maybe if he even beat him. Right. Casey had planned on having Andre take a fall because you know it's the, the masters were three twenty minute periods, British Commonwealth rules. You had to win win two falls. 
You could win by DQ, but you had to win two falls mm-hmm. in order to win the match. You couldn't, if you won one, and then the two other two, you just went through the 20-minute through, then you wouldn't win the match. So Casey went in there and told the referee to tell Andre, no, you can't take a fall. It's too dangerous for you. So he beat him in about five minutes in each fall because Andre didn't know how to work close. Like amateurs, Casey and I were both amateurs. He wrestled in college at Oklahoma State. So we could go out there and have a very credible-looking match, even if you had amateur wrestling-type people in the audience because they could, could not see through um, 99% of the stuff we did. Right. Well, anyway, Andre and I are talking about uh, how dangerous it was and all that. He said, no. He said, uh, we went to another city after the match in Baghdad. He said, I was walking down the street, and uh, a bullet went through my hair. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, oh, man. And I said, well, how would you feel like that? He said, oh, God's a lousy shot. Who could miss me? Who, who could miss me? <laughs> oh, good, good stuff. Awesome stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it never ends. Who, who could oh, miss man. me? <laughs> That's hilarious, man. We start yeah. off talking about the dog, and we end up telling an awesome Andre story, man. It's just you never know what we're gonna get here, and I love it. I'm here for the entire ride. I'm here for the duration. Speaking of the duration, we, you know, we typically cut off here at about five, ten minutes, Bob. I don't know how much time you feel like rolling here. I did have a few names for you that I wanted to run through here, if you have the time. I do, and I, uh, whatever you know, you're you're taking care of our format, and as far as the content matter, what you just said, folks, uh, kind listeners, uh, uh, you're probably going to get this kind of a, a delivery of segueing into different things because that's what happens when you're telling stories that, that are, you know, that these little side, Ronnie Garvin and I spent, here's another one. Ronnie Garvin and I spent four days on the road together and we were riding down the road and I had heard, I'd visited Ronnie at his place in West Virginia five or six summers in a row. And I'd heard, uh, I'd heard all his stories many times. And so he said, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about this one. He said, oh, no. I said, I told you. I said, well, tell it again. I said, it's a good story. And then they were. And I hadn't heard them at least in a year. I hadn't been there since last summer. Well, one of the times, one of the stories he was telling, he ventured onto a segue down a whole path that was like took three or four hours to talk about because oh, wow. he had never told it before. So I only use that as an example. Yeah. Yeah, I'll use that as an example. Is that what that's what happens? And I hope that if you're a listener and you know the if what you might consider disorganized style or it's not rambling, but I mean we we do venture from one subject to another pretty. I do, poor Ray, <laughs> bless bless you, brother. But you know you're. Well, I hope you'll bear with us because. Well, the good news uh, is about that. I just wanted to say this real quick is I have the format in front of me, so we're never going to go completely, you know, astray and forget where we're at. So anytime you think of something, I'm never going to cut you off because it's like, oh my God, now he's, you know, he's on to Don Fargo. You know, I would have kicked my own ass to cut you off from telling that Don Fargo story alone, you know, or we were talking about dog and we get into Andre and Iraq and. Why would somebody not want to hear these stories? So, yeah, while it's not in front of me on the screen, at the same time, I don't know these stories. I knew Andre worked over there in Iraq, but I don't know the stories like you do. So, you know, who am I to stop, you know, some great stories from getting out there? Otherwise, they may be lost in time and no thanks to that. So, yeah, I'm down. I'm absolutely down. Anytime you, you pivot to the left when I'm trying to go 
straight. I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me at all. And I'm sure <laughs> the listeners, they, they have to agree. So we're good there. I just, um, every week at the end of the, not necessarily at the end of the show, but somewhere later in the show, after we hit some big topics, I like to just run over a few names from your past. And we're kind of going in order here uh, because early on, you know, you're still breaking in, you're still learning things in the ring and stuff. So you're not really involved in anything major, no big angles, nothing going on, but there are a lot of talent. You're, you know, you're traveling through the Florida promotion and maybe you're meeting or maybe you're hanging out with to some degree. I don't know. Names that are never talked about by anyone ever, even people that wrestled during this time period. So I, you know, being the historian that I like to think that I am, these are names that are not talked about on a personal level. So that's why I always jot a few names down every week that I want to run by you to see if you have any memories of them inside the ring or outside. Okay. And so this week I kind of gave you a few earlier on, just so you get it, get your uh, mind flowing here for, you know, some, maybe some memories of some of these names. And the first one that came to mind, we've already talked about him before. And the name is Sam Steamboat, who taught you one of many lessons in pro wrestling, never run, never show the fear to the fans. <laughs> Even if you are scared, uh, Sam, he had big runs in Hawaii, all over the South Atlantic coast, Texas, and beyond by this point, 15 year veteran by 69, at least by, you know, when you broke in and for, for those wondering, while no relation, Yes, Ricky Steamboat got his name for his resemblance to Sam Steamboat. I was wondering if you had anything else to talk about in regards to Sam, uh, besides him uh, telling you to never run. Well, the other thing he told me was to watch. Uh, we were both out watching the matches, I remember, in Orlando, 1969. And he said, uh, keep watching the matches like this. That's the way to learn. Watch the matches and see things that you like that you think you can do. and you know, think about trying to learn those, and you know, uh, and that was that was good advice. Sam was uh, like a real straight arrow. I never saw him. I never saw him at, at like uh, the the nightclubs, or I uh, never saw him smoking or drinking. Uh, he had a car. He had a, a Cadillac that was, I'm telling you, showroom, like it's brand new, but it's like ten years old. He had uh, three hundred seventy-five thousand miles on it, and this thing, I'm telling you. Was immaculate, <laughs> and he said, uh, "I said, well, how'd you how'd you do it?" He said, "Keep oil in it." And uh, I saw him years later. I, I I only saw him in Florida. By the time I came back, he was gone. I'm not sure if he went back to Hawaii. But when I saw him years later, I, I spent a week over there. When I would come back from Hawaii, I would have my my wife or my girlfriend at the time meet me there, and uh, we we spent a week. Uh, in Hawaii before going back to the states and uh, the the continental states. Right. And um, I ran into him one time, and he had a he had parlayed his money and whatever into having a a business venture right on Waikiki Beach. Mm. So he was in he was in good shape. He was kind of uh, I mean, he wasn't unfriendly, but he was. I mean, we never we weren't partners. We never right. had a beer. We never rode down the road together. So he had no, he had no reason to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, glad handing me, but, uh, good guy, good worker walking, watching him work. Uh, I still remember him laying in the ring and a guy had a, it fouled him somehow, had a hold on him. And all he's doing is just kicking a foot up and down on the, he had, he wrestled barefoot and he was just, just kicking his foot up and down like for three or four minutes. How does I didn't know anything in a bit about the business yet, and I thought, how did you get away with that? Well, the way he got away with it because he was already over. I couldn't have done that, you know, without people saying, "Well, hey, 
fat boy, you're going to never do anything? Get up. <laughs> we don't know you. Right. Get up and do, go out and do something so we can, we can, we don't, all we want to do now is like, get the hook. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's about all I know about Sam. Oh, um, cool. Good, good, good guy. That's awesome to hear. So here's a, a, a big name that I really, you know, I want to learn more about because I've studied as much as I can and watched, or not watched, but I, I've read a lot of results and, and angles and things that he was involved in throughout his career. It's Cyclone Negro. Uh, by this point, another 15-year veteran in the business when you're breaking in. Sadly, another top star who gets overlooked because most of his career was pre-VCR, but he dominated in Florida, San Francisco. Puerto Rico, Los Angeles, all over Texas, had that famous, may have been the first ever, I'm not sure, I can't remember, but had that famous Texas death match with Dory Funk Sr. that went something like, I don't know, it was well over an hour. Right. Oh, great. Uh, you know, I was looking some stuff up today, and I just happened to run across his record. Uh, he, went, he went to Japan 22 times. He went to Australia 20 times during his career. Okay. I went to Japan four times and Australia three times, and I thought I was, you know. Now, he had a much longer career than I did. You know, well, we already talked about that. But great worker. Uh, I was looking at a match in Tampa. Uh, it was uh, Killer Carl Krupp and, Krupp and me against uh, Cyclone and uh, Rocky Johnson. And uh, Harley was a booker. I was assistant booker. And that was the earlier continuance of what we were talking about with Harley and me splitting towns. But Krupp, you know, I have no hard feelings. It's just long in the past. He screwed up the match so bad. I mean, just just a total abortion. Just horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. Just horrible. And we came back to the dressing room, and I was trying to hold it together. And uh, uh, <laughs> uh, when we just as we came in the door, he's, I hear Krupp behind me. I hear him say, Good match, huh? Wow. Oh, I, <laughs> I thought lost you were going to say, I'm sorry, Bob. <laughs> I lost it. I picked up one of those chairs, a uh, wooden chair, the kind that kids have in school where it has a seat with a little desk attached to it right. where you kind of slide in. Yeah, yeah. I, pick, I picked it up and threw it against the wall. I just <laughs> missed Harley Race. Harley was coming out, coming towards me to, to um, he was going to pull a croup off <laughs> reading the riot act, but... Harley was so amused by me, by my temper tantrum, that he had to cover his mouth and turned away. And, and later, I said, I, I said a bunch of swear words. And then <laughs> later, Harley pulled Carl aside and asked him what he thought he was doing out there. And later that night, Harley came down to the, the Imperial Room, down to the club. And yeah. he walked in, he was looking at me, and he just broke out laughing about me <laughs> smashing that chair like that. <laughs> but Cyclone was a great hand. I worked a match with him where I had a blade on my finger. And what happened was the, the Band-Aid, I was, I was green. This was like maybe the first time I ever used it. And I had a, I had a, a Band-Aid on it to cover it. It came off. So I thought, okay, uh, I can't, uh, you know, I've got a, like a little edge exposed, like a fingernail that comes over the top of the, your finger, except it's a razor blade. Right. And so I'm thinking, well, I'm going to slice cyclone to pieces so i tried to break the thing off on the turnbuckle pad well it was one of, it wasn't the old carbon type gillette blue blades which were they would break they would snap you know you could easily break them in two right these were steel or aluminum whatever these newer blades 
they weren't blue or black like the like the Gillette. They were something else. They didn't they didn't break. They bent. Discussing so I did was, the types of blades here on the show. I love it. We're just getting into everything. <laughs> well, sorry. Back back to the story. It's just common knowledge. I mean, I believe the WWE went on de- on detail about it. No, but, no. I just meant the types of blades. It's just you know interesting. Oh yeah. <laughs> just different well, types. anyway. <laughs> all I all I did now this is probably the best match I worked in my life even after I learned to work was I had I bent when I bent it I tried I all I did was bend the the tip of it where it was pointing straight up mm-hmm. up the end of my finger I didn't know how to get it off it was on my finger with the adhesive tape I didn't know how to get it off the end of my finger without drawing I didn't know how to work yet very well I mean now it's easy you know just get a hold and have him get a hold take me over and I can get it off there but. I worked a match with him, and I managed not to slice him up. I sliced a little bit of my own leg. It didn't need stitches or anything, but that was one of the that was one of the high spots of my uh, my association with Cyclone. The other one was we we're flying to Puerto Rico, and I, I'm just going to say I, I'm not going to go into detail here. Just about Cyclone, okay? Because we'll do this next time. Uh, we were flying in a private plane. By owned by one of the partners in the, in the Florida, and it took us eight hours to get there, whereas the heels got to go commercial. It took them an hour and a half, so we were on a plane all day long with no bathroom on it. A little bitty plane, Turn Engine Beach, uh, full of people, no bathroom, just fun. Eight hours on there. So uh, we this one trip we had an engine go out. We had to stop at a SAC Air Base. They told us, "Do not land. You'll be." We're going to fire on you if you land. He had to land. The plane was going to crash. Right. So, so we stopped. We left. By the time we got to San Juan, that was on one end. That was on the near end of the island. By the time we got over to San Juan, it was a quarter to 11. The show went on at 8.30. So it was a quarter to 11. What they did, it was all, all it was there were heels. What they did is they had what matches they could. And at, la- at the very last, the only thing they had left was Cyclone against J.C. Dykes. Oh wow! Okay, More now f- picture that famous you know, as a manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bitty, <laughs> little bitty, shriveled up. I mean, Jimmy was a nice guy, all right, but yeah. you know, he wasn't. He was about as athletic as a rutabaga, you know. <laughs> and how? What? What I'm attributing here is probably to both of them. I'm sure they did a lot of walking and talking, but how they managed to kill 45 minutes and have a match. That's oh what I was told. They had a match. All that says is what a. A genius worker, Eddie Eduardo Rodriguez, Psycho Negro is. Uh, and the other time was we spent about a month together in Australia, and we roomed together on the road, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, great guy to be around, good sense of humor, great like to work out. We got along real well. Good, really good guy. I was sorry to hear that he he passed away, but uh, he had a great career. By the way, that job I was offered in. And uh, Amarillo, he took it later. Uh, he stayed there seven years. Oh, so, wow. Uh, so, wow. Yeah. So he, he was there for the long yeah, he, haul for the most part, huh? Yeah. Oh, well, he probably had kids in school and all that. So, you know, it was good for him. Yeah, unfortunately, so, yeah. I can't turn people on to, you know, much of his work. Like I said, not much out there on video. Uh, sadly, he tried to continue to compete all the way into the mid-'80s. He popped up on Memphis TV one week under a mask, under a hood, doing a, a Cyclops gimmick. And uh, he was so bad off physically by that point, uh, his knees were so gone that he didn't even make the, the Monday night Mid-South Coliseum card. He was already gone from the company that quickly because 
he just couldn't go. Sad, you know, sad to see them him trying to keep doing it after he just, you know, his body just couldn't do it anymore. But so I can't really point people to a lot of his work. But if you go back and study the magazines, read, you know, read the old articles and things, and read about some of the matches and, and angles he was involved in, especially down there with the funks and all that good stuff, he was certainly, you know, one of those unsung heroes of of his era. So I'm glad you had a few stories there to share with with the Cyclone Negro. Um, well, the the proof the proof in the pudding there, Ray, is that. There's 20 trips to Japan, 22 to or 22 to Japan, 20 in Australia. I tell you right there, the guy got over. Right. You don't keep going back to places right. no, unless you get you over. <laughs> right. No, they don't want you back unless you get over. I mean, where you're a big a big draw. So yeah, he was a great hand. He great hand in the ring. He could do anything. Very cool. Uh, let's take a look at, uh, how about Masa Saido, Mr. Saido, they call him Mr. Torture. He broke in about 1965 and his first trip to the United States, I believe was 1968. So fairly fresh to the U S scene in 69. That would have been your first run in with Saido, but probably not your last. Well, he was the one that I told you got his nose ripped, uh, when he went out to try to rescue (laughs) Dale Lewis on Dale's dash to the outfield. We had, I've I got, I think it's a funny story with Saito. I mean, it's amusing. We were working in uh, in Freeport in the Bahamas, in Nassau. And uh, the, the the building there, or it was a restaurant, open-air restaurant. They had to ring out in what would normally, I think, would be the dance floor. And they had the chairs around. And I think the owner made the majority of his money. He could only get a few hundred people in there. I think they made he made the majority of his money from selling drinks at the bar. But um, the dressing room, well, I got a bunch of stories. But on this particular <laughs> night, what happened? The people that couldn't get in, I said it was open air. People who couldn't get into the matches would protest by lobbying objects like coconuts and big rocks Oof. from outside. They would lobby them over the wall. I've heard those stories, yeah. And they would aim them towards the ring. You know, you could hear the wrestlers and the referee talking and everybody. They would allow them towards the ring. So after, uh, I, probably after one rendition of this, the owner put up in each turnbuckle post, he added a pole. He put a chicken wire fence, a chicken wire over the ring so that anything that would come from outside would hit the chicken wire, would bounce off, which usually it bounced <laughs> off, hit somebody in the audience, which... <laughs> So you really risk your, risk your potatoes when you want to to watch wrestling. And, you don't want to be a front row front row yeah. seat anyway. At Nashville, well, anyway, this over the years, by the time we worked there, this 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 uh, chicken wire has some holes in it. That's some pretty big ones, like say the size of a sizable watermelon, okay. where I mean a coconut <laughs> or whatever. So uh, we're out there, we're working, and a, a coconut b- uh, bounced off, boing, 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 and and uh, dribble off, didn't hit anybody. Then a, a smaller, like a rock about the size of a, say, a shot put uh, came winging in. That one hit some guy in the first row in the knee, and they carted him out of there. So I kept telling Sayoto, I said, uh, about five minutes in the match, we're supposed to go 20 minutes. And I said, uh, we need to get out of here. Uh, you know, I said, look, he said, no, no, we, we, we go 20 minutes. For and that's the way he was. Uh-huh. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing. That's just the way he said, oh, no, we go 20 minutes. So we're, I get him a headlock and I take him over. And all of a sudden we hear this sprawling <laughs> and I look up and this rock about the size of a big watermelon, but it's flat and probably weighs about 30 pounds. 
it hits the far side of the uh, whoever but probably took three or four guys to launch the thing. I was going to say some shotgunners down there in the Bahamas. Jesus. <laughs> By the time it hits the chicken wire, it hits it at the far end. It bounces, 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 and it bounces into that hole, the one I was talking about, watermelon size. Mm-hmm. And it just it just poised there for a second. Then it turned where the sharp edge or the the, the narrow edge of that thirty pound rock is aimed downwards. <laughs> then it fell through and landed about two feet from his head. And he said, "We go home. We go. We go home." It's and that's, that's uh, that should's over. Right. That's, it's it's funny. Well, I'm glad that was the delivery because that's what I was. If you had said, "What do you think he said, Ray?" I was going to say, "We go home now." <laughs> yes, yes, we go home. Yeah, we had about 12 minutes left to do. <laughs> no more 20 minute match there, Masa Saido. Yeah. Well, we'll go another uh, 12 minutes, so yeah, maybe to take a chance on risking the rest of your entire career or life. Yeah, <laughs> rock come down yeah. on your yeah. face. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh well. Yeah. Yeah, he went. He went from yeah. No, we go. We go twenty minutes. To, we go home now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll wrap it up here this week. If you got time, Bob, we'll cover a tag team real quick, and then we'll we'll finish up things here for the holiday. Okay. All right. So there was a tag team in there around sixty nine and seventy. I'm talking about the Florida Territory by the name of Dante and Mephisto, and at the time that was Bobby Hart and Frankie Kane here. Not to be confused, Bobby Hart's other partner quite often was a guy by the name of Lorenzo Parenti. Not sure if you're familiar with him or not, but Bobby worked a lot of places, but he had the most success in tag gaming, mostly up in Nashville and Memphis. But I was wondering, we're going to get to Frankie here in a second, but I was wondering, you know, if you have any stories or memories of Bobby Hart, uh, Dante of the Dante and Mephisto tag team. Well, he was a good hand. He was a good worker and he was a pilot. He could fly. He had his own private license. He could fly. And gotta uh, make friends with those pilots. Yeah, oh yeah, they're very <laughs> handy. He was a good guy. Uh, I never, you know, what I never rode with Frankie either. Frankie uh, was more friendly with me in the dressing room than than Bob. And Bobby wasn't unfriendly, uh, but I didn't get to know him very well. But I did get to know Frankie a little bit uh, because I worked. I had worked singles with him when I first started, so I had I had a connection with him, which I had never done with. With Bobby, I never worked a single match with him. I'm trying to remember. I think I was a heel by that time. I don't think I would have worked against those guys. I don't ever remember working them. There was another guy. Uh, did Bobby have a brother? Curtis. Uh, there was a brother named, and they might not have been. They might have been named. Uh, Are you referring to Curtis Smith? Yeah, yeah. Rocky, Rocky, and Curtis Smith were Rocky. Yeah, Rocky who, Smith. Okay. Were they the Were they the Boo de- the Boo Demons or whatever? They had. Uh, they had Dykes as their manager, didn't they? Yeah, Dykes was definitely a manager in the mix and all of that stuff. There was a, another guy, and, and depending on the territories, they were all over the place, and there was a couple of guys involved in there with a lot of different masks, blue demons, infernos, lots of things going on there. So trying to think off the top of my head, I don't know them in order. I'm sure Jim Cornette could lay them out for me. But I, yeah. I, yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah, those guys, they, they were interchangeable. I, I hate to say it like that. I'm not trying to downgrade them, but there was just a few of them that they, they worked several mask gimmicks, and they were really good at that heel tag team gimmick during they that were time good. period. They were, they were well-coordinated, uh, and, and, and usually they were, they were all fit. They were all in good enough shape that you know, they could go a long match or they could do, go a match where there had to be a lot of quick moving around, like they do the illegal twitch and all that stuff, where a guy 
get out of there without tagging in and, and uh, you know, all the different things they would do to build their heat. Uh, I remember on being, but, you know, they were good hands. Bobby was a good hand. And that's, a, that's the nicest thing to say about somebody is right. that they, they knew what they were doing. You know, out there they could go and work with anybody and have a good match. And uh, Frankie, of course, was uh, in a class of his own. That's where we were going next was Frankie Kane, who was Mephisto in this uh, rendition of Dante Mephisto. He would, of course, of course, become known much better as the Great Mephisto. And he worked just about everywhere, too, Bob. But much of the time doing something similar to, I guess you could refer to it as kind of like the Sheik's gimmick. Only uh, Frankie, very well-spoken, I always thought, would cut his own promos at times throughout his career, eventually went on to manage a little bit. I don't I don't, I don't want to undersell how good Frankie was as a wrestler and booker, though. I know he booked in Mississippi and some other places as well. I don't know if you, you know, what kind of stories you have to share. You said you didn't really ride down the roads with Frankie, but you seem to really put him over here on the show. Well, yeah, the matches, uh, when I was a rookie, uh, you know, didn't, didn't know a thing about how to have a match. I always had good matches with him, you know, and he did everything. I mean, all I had to do was just do what he said or what he seemed to be telling me to do by his whatever he, his, his body actions were. And, you know, it was I, I respected that. I And plus, he was very nice. You know, he was uh, collegial. Uh, he didn't treat me like a raw rookie. He was friendly and uh, encouraging. You know, he said, I think you're going to make a good hand and those kind of things. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he beat me and he come thank me. You know, he thanked me for doing a job for him. And I was glad to. You know, they always had him use the boot, which, you know, was nice because it gave me an out. But he called me one time. I think about this. He called me one time. He wanted to go and promote in Montana or Idaho, somewhere out in the mid middle middle of the country because they didn't have any any wrestling out there. And I just, he needed $5,000. I just, I just didn't happen to have it at the time. And that's one of those ones. Again, I said earlier, I don't look back and say, oh, what if, what if, because I'm happy here. But you know, I just say this, I couldn't have been a better guy to go into business with because that guy was a, a straight shooter. Uh, he didn't have to lie to you because if you didn't like it, you could fight him. <laughs> he didn't care how big you were. Yeah, well, I mean, he wasn't looking for trouble, but he right. could sure handle it. He could sure handle it if it showed up. <laughs> That's cool. You know, yeah. It showed up looking for him. He could sure handle it. You know, I so, know. I don't know if it ever came out. I don't know if it was released yet, but I heard that they were going to be releasing a book, and you know, Frankie Kane uh, biography. And I, I hopefully, if you know, if, if it is released, I, I would love to get a hold of that because that's got to be have some good stories in there for sure. Let me let me update your your info on that. Absolutely. Ray. Sure. Scott Scott Teal at Crowbart okay. Press wrote a book with Frankie. Okay. Uh, his books are most of Scott's books are talking to the character, and then Scott writes a book, but they're based on uh, on on what uh, he's he's told. He wrote uh, Don Fargo's the Don Fargo's book, the one I read. Yes. Uh, about Don, and and he's he's written about Jody Hamilton. He's written Jim Dillon. Ole Anderson was the first one. Uh, he's written a bunch of them, you know, and and they're good. Scott does good work. He's got a lot of products, but anybody out there, just go to Crowbar Press. Again, Scott Teal, uh, he was a referee, and uh, he started a magazine called Whatever Happened To, right. a little five or six page, which uh, he put retired wrestlers who were still alive. He'd, he'd interview them, and then he'd write an article about them so you could see, think about that. You're somebody who's retired, and all of a sudden, you're not the limelight anymore, and 
because you neglected your family most of the time when you were working. They got no time for you, and so you're just kind of out, out in left field by yourself. And uh, someone like Scott comes along and says, hey, I think people would be interested in you know what you're doing now. Boy, tell me how, how much nicer that could be than have someone do that for you. When I found out what he had, I bought, I think he had 47 copies at the time. I, I bought every one of them from him. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, they're not expensive, you know. So, yeah, if you want to read about There's Frank, some really you, great reads. I've read several of those books you just mentioned. They're really good stuff. Well, they're in the, they're in the voice of the, of the person they're talking about. It's sure. not Scott writing his opinion. It's right. writing what, what the guys say. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they're good. They're very good books. Although everyone I've read has been excellent. All right, guys, and, and Bob, um, before we wrap the show up, I wrote just a, kind of a index here for myself of some of the major topics we have upcoming here on the show. So if everybody will bear with me for a minute or two, I'm just going to read some of them off here to give you guys an idea of what we're going to talk about. We're going to try to touch on at least one of these every week moving forward, guys. Huge, huge storylines in the world of professional wrestling over the past five decades. Um, and Bob, if you're cool with that, I'm just going to run down just some of the things that we'll probably be touching on here in the next several weeks. Of course. All right, guys. So just some of the stories here still to come. We'll be talking Bruiser Brody. We'll be looking at the rookie Frank Goodish and fast forwarding to his untimely murder in Puerto Rico circa 1988. Your time, Bob, in Australia, Europe, Japan, Iraq. Lots of international stories coming. We'll talk about San Francisco, how things went sideways working for Roy Shire. Of course, we'll be looking into Bob's time in Knoxville as well, working for Ron Fuller. Yes, guys, the Knoxville Five and the Plan B video. Uh, the memories of the plane crash that killed Bobby Shane. Perhaps a deeper look into Bobby Shane, the man as well. Bob's time main eventing in the Mid-South Territory with, I'm sure, plenty more discussion of JYD, Paul Orndorff, Ted DiBiase, the cowboy himself, Bill Watts, and many others will recall the epic evening now known as Black Saturday. I'm sure you remember that, Bob, when Vince McMahon bought out majority stock in Georgia Championship Wrestling and took over the TBS Airwaves. Can't wait to hear what Ole Anderson had to say about that one. Uh, <laughs> fast forward. <Yeah. laughs> you have to edit that out. <laughs> oh no, I want. I wanted. I want all the all the explicits right there. Let's just keep it <laughs> keep it live, Ole Anderson style. Uh, we'll fast forward yeah. too. We'll go ahead a year, and we'll also be talking about Jim Crockett buying said TBS time slot from Vince McMahon and going national himself. Of course, along with JCP, inherited Ole's Georgia roster at the time, including a guy by the name of Bob Roop. How about this one, Bob? Uh, we go back to Florida in the mid-80s, and the Maya Singh character, part of Kevin Sullivan's Army of Darkness, how Maya Singh was originally pitched to Bob, what it was supposed to be, and how it got kiboshed, and who killed the uh, gimmick before it even started and hey, did you guys know that Bob also dabbled in promoting in the 1980s, along with Gordon Soley on commentary? We'll be talking about that. And when Ole Anderson took over the book in WCW at the beginning of 1990, wouldn't you know it, Bob Root brought in as an agent for the company. Uh, the backstage stories, he can tell you, I am so sure. So uh, we'll be diving deep into guys like Eddie Graham, Gordon Soley, Dusty Rhodes, and so many more. We'll be discussing many stories and incidents that happened behind the scenes with those polarizing figures and characters that may change how you look at them forever. Plus other stories I can't even mention here yet, guys. Uh, again, just some of the things coming up here in the weeks to come. Lots to f look forward to here, Bob. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it for sure, Ray. And the, yeah, these are just some of the things, guys. <laughs> Remember that. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to get that out there. Lots of people wondering what else is there to talk about. This is just the the tip of the iceberg. But these are these are a lot of major events. And you were like Forrest Gump. You were there for most of them. <laughs> well, based on those, you know, what you're talking about is like subject heads on a a paper or like an outline of, sure. a, of a long story. Like all the segues we did today, I'll give you an example. And all and thinking of all the different wrestlers of, of I might talk about on this is our fourth fourth outing. Uh, I never thought of uh, uh, Don Fargo. I never thought of him, and but he came out today, didn't he? Sure he did. And that's that's going to happen. Uh, some memories trigger other memories, and when they do, I'm going to bring them out because some of them need to be elaborated on. Some of them uh, we couldn't handle. I mean, uh, we couldn't didn't have enough time to talk about what an ordeal it was to go to Puerto Rico uh, and how exactly how terrible that was and risky, uh, flying over 600 miles of ocean with uh, on one engine and the other one smoking, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. So those are sub- topic heads, but believe me, there's a lot of stories, and I'm really happy to be able to share them with you. Yeah, I, I look forward to this each and every week now, and uh, it's just going to get better and better as time goes on. So many things to cover. And we're just, like I said, just at the tip of the iceberg thus far. You never know what you're going to get here every week. The Terry Funk stories last week, Don Fargo this week. Who knows what the hell's going to happen <laughs> the following week. We'll just have to wait and see, guys. But again, I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Bob, and your children. And uh, just fortunate enough to have you here on the show again this week. Thank you so much for being a part of the Russellcopia Podcast Network. Well, thank you, too, Ray, and my my own uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Ray, to you and your family. Thanks again. All right, guys. And remember, you can come and find Bob Roop on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Yes, indeed. Friend him there, guys. He's looking forward to hearing from you. Tell him how you like the show. Tell him how you hate the show. Hey, he's been a heel. He gets the heat. Uh, but, yeah, just make sure you, you follow Bob Roop on Facebook and follow me on facebook.com slash Grenade. You guys can also follow me on X or formerly the Twitter. Uh, you guys can follow me there at Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And, again, I have been your co-host, Ray Russell. A pleasure to be here as part of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. <laughs>